This is the user experience Gamburg Radio. Thanks for listening. I'm good to go. Right, so it's my pleasure to introduce Arid Halperin. Um, Arid is currently a uh, visiting a fellow for the summer at the Digital Cultures Research Lab, um, and we are obviously very tough to have her around, and she's already been uh, kind of a great, uh, a, yeah, a great fellow to have around, and we've, we've learned a lot, and um, yeah, I think she's also enjoying the time here, I'm hoping. Marit um, is usually, when she's not here, an assistant professor at the New School for Social Research on the Eugene Lang College in History. Um, and she's affiliated to a few other places in New York, and the Parsons School of Design and so on. It's the same university. It's all the same, right. The same <laughs> we just have a different name for every division. It's right. a little bit like the, the like center, like the yeah. <laughs> it's a little bit like, who gets it? Actually, our structure is very, yeah. Orit, um, uh, you, you might know her if, uh, on this topic from something she's written about smart cities. There's a, um, kind of a white, widely read article on testbed urbanism that she's co-authored. Uh, she's got a book forthcoming called Beautiful Data, um, which will be, I think, out in autumn or in spring, oh. autumn hopefully. And the subtitle is A History of Vision and Reason Since 1945, um, which sounds very exciting. And then Urit is currently working on um, two book projects. One is called Calculative Utopias, which is about um, the pol political spatial imaginaries um, kind of from the 1920s onwards, I think. And another one is called Strange Agencies. So feel free to say more about that. But it's a yeah. history of post-war intelligence, NSA to neuroscience. Um, yeah. <laughs> it'll be a good time. Cool. <laughs> and then today, Arut's going to talk about the neurocognitive complex, a brief genealogy of responsive environments yes. for about 40 well, that's, that's the hot term these days, responsive environment. Forget ubiquitous. Um, so uh, I was originally going to talk about testbed urbanism. I'm going to talk a little bit about the zonal logic, but... Um, yeah, download the article. It's on my website uh, if you want to know a whole lot more. And also because um, I find these uh, smart cities, I work a lot. So, um, so what is this smart ubiquitous thing? And so today I want to try to create a little bit of a genealogy. Um, for some people, a little bit of this talk may be um, repetition, so I apologize. I've given four talks here. Uh, but a lot of it will be new, and hopefully it will open up a conversation about how we are trying to historicize and denaturalize our assumptions about what constitutes smartness, right? So um, I spent a lot of time, oh no, my computer's in the way. Oh. I can move this. You want, I can move this. Okay. And actually, I don't know if we need like a little darker. Unfortunately, the slides are a big feature of this talk. <laughs> Just watch the slides, don't even listen to me. Uh, anyway, I work in this, um, in this complex, this is Songdo in South Korea, and I've been working there for the last year and a half, interviewing a lot of people at Cisco and, and related, um, and government officials who, uh, who are busy basically uh, creating these sort of uh, cities. South Korea is deeply invested in becoming a pioneer in infrastructure development, and the government has entered, sort of produced these management consulting companies along with Cisco and some of their large tribals to kind of roll this sort of city, we call it a uh, spatial product, out in places like Malaysia and Ecuador and everything. And it's um, and the, the supposed fabulous thing about this, it was 
is that it's a smart city and the conduits are very big. They have something like three meter conduits. There's a supposed all this bandwidth. It's actually not much smarter than Seoul, but there's a lot of uh, bandwidth in general uh, in East Asia. So um, uh, anyway, that's this kind of, uh, and it's part of, uh, oh no, the, the writing isn't showing up here, but this is, this is a whole slew of Cisco's uh, smart plus connected community projects. Um, stretching for ones in the in the kind of um, Hyderabad area of India. That's Songdo. This one is um, a Russian a series of projects in uh, in Russia. Uh, so and one in Malaysia. So they they have them all over. And the final one, I don't even have a picture, but you can imagine they all look alike. Um, is is in Ecuador, and and they're um, they're happily rolling these things out. And the idea here is that they're kind of, the Cisco talks about them as test beds, which is that essentially they're, they're, these greenfield cities are in many ways just places to kind of prototype and develop right, uh, infrastructural technology that will then be rolled out hopefully in just everybody's city. So one can't really see these cities as necessarily separate from a broader <coughs> vision of, um, of kind of smart, smart environments, responsive environments. And of course, Songdo is a global business utopia. <laughs> in Incheon, it's a free economic zone. In fact, all of Korea is a free economic zone. So there are seven zones in Korea. The entire place is basically just one. It's kind of a bizarre thing, right? Like the whole place is an exception to its own rules. Each one of the economic zones uh, has to negotiate with the government. Its own kind of it has very, very different um, goods. It provides very different kind of legal and, and deregulatory frameworks. Incheon is comprised of three projects, one of which is not doing very well, which is this, the Incheon Airport, and a massive container port that's being built right now. And so it's got logistics, it's got smartness, and there's supposed to be a finance leisure city rolled out, Shenyang, but it hasn't, it hasn't done so well. Um, but anyway, so this thing is, is uh, being built, and, the, and they have all these fancy apartments that are full of sensors and screens, and you can be monitored, and your health can be immediately delivered. And of course, it comes with um, a whole set of reorganization around city governance and governmentality. The idea, of course, is that um, the government will sell the population's data, right, so they don't have to take taxes. So you're going to monetize, basically, the user's attention um, and nervous system. And there's this very complicated set of reformulation between the private um, operating and control center that's going to deal with things like water and, and um, fire, et cetera, and the, and the city management, the public uh, management. So there's sort of all sorts of um, arrangement they're trying to figure out about sort of where data stops and who controls what and um, who has to build what. Uh, for the most part, um, and just another note, these are all highly leveraged, of course. Um, in keeping with our global business, it's Morgan Stanley real estate mostly behind this complex. Uh, and that's kind of endemically true of these smart city complexes. In fact, in India, they don't even bother building them. They just s swap the debt and so forth, even without the high-tech office park. But uh, and uh, Morgan Stanley is OK, irrespective of what happens to these things. And many of these things are fiscally and financially uh, vulnerable or high risk. Um, and in fact, uh, Songdo was doing very badly until fairly recently, uh, when 
and also there's a huge number of universities that are coming in, University of Texas, University of Oklahoma, um, SUNY Buffalo, they all have outposts here. So it's sort of a kind of university high tech and Samsung came in and kind of saved it with its biotech division. So there's a lot of biotech, biotech uh, sort of research services here and along with residential. Uh, all wonderfully leveraged. Anyway, um, what interests me about, there's very little actually that's interesting about this. <laughs> uh, but, you know, in a lot of ways, what I laid out is kind of almost a predictable story. Yes, neoliberalism, highly preemptive, highly speculative, total biopolitics, intrusion down to your nervous system, selling it away. Um, so there's, you know, there's, there's, a, there's a whole series of things that in some sense it, it's hard to clear these things up. You know, like, okay, so what can I say about this that we don't <laughs> kind of know? Not, 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 no, but like that you wouldn't have already expected. Um, outside of the fabulous fact that there is something astounding, this is the largest, um, one of the largest real estate developments on Earth. So for a New Yorker, it's just like, whoa, I can't believe they built all this, they grafted it out of the sea, it's like massive. Um, lot of, uh, so that's unusual. But the other thing that struck me, and it may also be obvious, but in some sense I wanna try to figure out is, um, so how is it that we've come to believe that ubiquitous technology is, that ubiquity is a virtue, and that it's related to life, to sustainability, and now even scarier terms like resilience. Um, and, uh, and this relationship, right, is, is quite endemic. I've started now working also in Singapore, and this is um, the gardens by the bay. This is a very fancy development in Singapore. Singapore is also extremely high-tech uh, infrastructure. And the gardens by the bay, uh, in the, it comes with this large um, development in general, Moshe Safdi buildings, and then these gardens where basically what's, what's incredible when you visit these things is they're like, the world is ending, and, um, but we're really rich, and so we've biobanked it here. And, and they're like, don't even bother trying to save it. That, that's, these are apocalypse now type discourses. So it sits very well, of course, within this apocalyptic capital that a lot of people talk about. And so we've kind of moved from Garden City to they frame it as a city in a garden. So the idea of Singapore as a kind of fortress garden space secured through technology um, is very prevalent. Uh, so what interests me is this, how did bandwidth, as rates of bits transferred between connections in a unit of time come to equal sustainability, come to equal life? And that may seem very, very obvious, but I was like, you know, there's nothing obvious about this, especially when you realize that servers take a lot of energy. So there's like, it's like a self-destructive project, right? Um, but that's okay, because the more you destroy, the more you, I guess, make. Um, and then, not only is it that bandwidth and sustainability have come to equal life, but how is it that sensing, which is a sensor-filled environment, because most, most of these cities, the only thing they provide are sensors. Environmental sensors for particle amounts, uh, movement sensors, uh, all sets of sensors, right? But how did sensors come to equal smartness? And smartness come to equal network stupidity, which is like the small amounts of sensing boxes working together is gonna end up making this fabulous smart city and then it's gonna save our lives. 
So maybe this is all obvious to you, but it was not obvious to me when I was a historian trying to think about what I would do about it. So, um, so I'm trying to think about the visibilities in history. And this is um, a prototype control room. They just went online. I took this in like September. They just went online with us. Um, and you can see, and, and what's really interesting about these rooms, right, is that we tend to think that this control room is directly linked to this control room, to the, the kind of command and control of World War II. But I'm actually not sure about that link. Um, actually, I think things are deceptive. What I find interesting about this, of course, this is an IBM operations center, and they have them all over, Rio being the most prevalent right now, is that um, the people looking at this don't see anything. This is all computer, basically, these, they're just algorithms running through looking for cars speeding. There's a middle one that's like environmental monitoring, they're monitoring buildings. But the computers basically are, are running through and kind of, um, looking for deviation or things that um, should be acted upon. And actually, the individuals working on this aren't doing anything. And in fact, in places like Tokyo, um, and also Seoul and the subway systems running here, you know, the system kind of goes online. Every station just talks to three next to it, and the system kind of goes online in a decentered way. And basically, there's no kind of hyper-centralized command and control. And furthermore, due to the amounts of data and information, um, the question of why all these screens and what visibility is doing in the public space is itself a kind of question. So um, with that kind of rapid fix on these zonal logics, we're going to ask a little bit about this history. And to start about that, I'm actually not going to talk about cities very much at all. Um, so Nicholas Negroponte is often credited with kind of a really central place in producing responsive environments and responsive architectures. And he wrote this book, The Architecture Machine, in 1970. And when he opened with his, you know, grand um, uh, thing, he basically said, computer-aided design cannot occur without machine intelligence. And that must be behavioral, and it must have a sophisticated set of sensors, effectors, and processors. So essentially, he put forth both that computer-aided design must be about a new relationship between humans and machines, and it must be um, a new type of intelligence. That intelligence is related to sensing and sensation. Um, what's really interesting is, of course, this has nothing to do with architecture, which is to say a history of smart cities maybe shouldn't start with urban planning, but needs, of course, to begin asking what models is Negroponte calling upon? What models are, are um, designers calling upon? And to start with that, I, I want to go through a kind of um, super hyper-fast history of all of this, which is to say I'm going to look at um, a number of different moments genealogically. In the first, So I'm going to go through um, a rethinking of intelligence by discussing neural nets and their impact. Um, a reconfiguration of sense perception. This is a cybernetic frog's eye. And I'm going to rethink um, how infrastructure and, and organization. So I'm going to go from inside our minds to the organization of, um, of the reorganization of organization uh, to kind of try to lay out what I'm calling a kind of neurocognitive complex that underpins our faith that smartness equals life. Um, and to begin I'm sure most people know what cybernetics is, but just really quickly. Um, uh, so we all know, um, this is from Norbert Wiener's uh, Human Use of Human Beings, that cybernetics emerged out of anti-aircraft defense, or at least Norbert Wiener's work on machines and um, people came out of the anti-aircraft defense. And then essentially, um, 
he black boxed, he started to think that both humans and machines can be modeled mathematically um, through this research. And cybernetics, of course, has a few distinctive features that many of you are probably familiar with, but um, I want to highlight because they're part of this discussion. It's behavioral, right? So um, you don't care what something is, you care how it acts. It's got a probabilistic element in the sense of you need to figure out where the plane's going to be. And so it's also anticipatory. And the final thing, it's got this Im imagination, not of a world of discovery, but a world that's already data rich. That the problem is finding the pattern. It's about um, dealing with all these excesses of noise and all the way that we define noise. And you can ask me about that later. Um, Anyway, so what's smartness? In 1943, deeply inspired by the idea that machines and minds might be thought together um, through the language of logic and mathematics, the psychiatrist Warren McCullen, the logician Walter Pitts at University of Illinois, Urbana-Champaign, um, decided quite literally to, to take quite literally the machine-like nature of human beings. In an article titled The Logical Calculus of Ideas, Imminent in Nervous Activity, that appeared in the Bulletin of Mathematical Biophysics, um, they expressed, uh, they put forth a new model that would go on to uh, influence everything, right, from the memory of, um, of, a, of a von Neumann architecture uh, to the rise of cognitive science and further, um, and particularly inspired Negroponte uh, for purposes of this conversation. In fact, he cites McCullough many times in the course of his work. Um, Interestingly enough, while inspired by Norbert Wiener's work and wartime correlations between minds and machines, the paper was also, in the words of McCullough, an answer to a more fundamental logical problem, which is what is a number that a man may know it and a man that he may know a number? <laughs> what, is, what is a number that a man may know it and a man that he may know a number? So what are those things? And um, so, yeah, the way these guys talk, they have some big questions. Um, anyway, so he spent his life answering this, but the question is really the framing, a reframing of another one. Uh, and he said this after writing this article that this is sort of the question that drove all his work, which is it's a reframing of the problem. Basically, what is the limit of logic? What's the limit of what can be defined and computed? And how did he and Walter Pitts answer this question? In this article, they uh, introduced the idea that neurons operate on an all-or-nothing principle when firing electrical impulses over synaptic separations. This all-or-nothing threshold likens them to digital binary, and therefore nets could be modeled as Turing machines. This model was based on two interesting characteristics, a semiotic feature and a temporal one. The first interesting fact was that every neuron firing, according to McCullough, had a semiotic character. It was mathematically rendered as a proposition. It affirms or denies a fact of activation, and therefore neurons can be thought of as signs, true-false, um, or logic statements, and nets as semiotic situations or communication structures. The second element was a temporal structure that assumes the fundamental psychosis of both machines and minds. Am I going too loud? Uh, no. no, loud is good, because they can hear you, but it, you go fast. Oh, no, Sorry. no, come on. We, we got to get... <laughs> okay, okay. You, you, we're working here with neurocognitive... <laughs> I mean, come on, I'm going to speed you up. I mean, by the end of this, you're just going to be jacked so in. So my neurons aren't It doesn't today. really matter if you're following what I'm saying. <laughs> That's the point. Okay, okay, I'll slow down. Okay. All right, all right. We'll get... We'll... 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 we'll um, It'll be like an, the Nietzschean untimely will disrupt the logic by uh, 
temporally unfolding at a different speed than these networks. Um, so the second element is this temporal assumption that assumes a fundamental psychosis, right? Um, an, imminent, an imminent inability to differentiate the inside or outside that results are in interiority or exteriority that results from the temporal nature of the net. So in order to make nets um, equivalent to uh, Markov chains and algorithms, they had to give it a certain temporal structure, which is to say, given a net at a particular time state t, you can predict the future action of the net t plus 1, but not the past action. You cannot know from within the net which neuron had fired to excite the current situation. McCullough offered the model of a circular memory neuron activating itself with its own electrical impulses. You can see that little curly cue there. Within neural nets at any moment, so what you experience as memory is not the recollection of the original activation of the neuron, but merely that it was activated in the past at an indeterminate time. Within neural nets at any moment, you cannot know which neuron you received a message from or whether it was a misfire. In short, you cannot know whether the stimulus comes from inside or outside the net, whether it was a fresh input or simply recycled memory. More importantly, who cares? <laughs> All networks, including minds, are, according to McCullough, who is a psychiatrist, psychotic, incapable of placing themselves in time and space. So he explained, for example, that whether one feels hot or cold was not a question of what the temperature of the external stimuli factually was, but rather the route the signal takes to arrive. So we care about just the structure of the net. McCullough spoke of sensation and perception as an illusion, but what McCullough really implied was that the true illusion was none other than that of a subject, as an entity separate from the perceptual field, the illusion of consciousness and analytic command over the world. This inseparability of thought from the world, or mind and body, was, of course, hardly a new problem. And both McCullough and Pitts knew that, but what is rather interesting, historically, for me at least, was the transformation of a vexing philosophical dilemma into a technological opportunity. What for the result of such an attitude was what mattered was what you could predict, or preempt, history, situations, the life you had lived, McCullough said, attacking ego-centered psycho psychoanalysis, all didn't matter for psych therapy, just rewire the system, um, and couldn't be known by science, and he loved using drugs. Um, <laughs> oh no, no, he had ideas. He was like, you're coming out of a battlefield, you're feeling a little shocked. We can just give you some amphetamines and then barbiturates. It'll work. <laughs> you'll forget. Uh, or you'll go back, you'll be better. Um, but, and that has a lot of bearing actually also how we're currently thinking about our psyches and our minds, of course. So what did matter in science should contract on, concentrate on, he said, so we can't get to the truth, he doesn't care. It's about pragmatism. The structural properties of the intervening nervous net, the materiality for him that acts. McCullough, right, wants to embody process. It's the pro what the net is, is the process of thought. Um, so for neural net researchers, the question then turned to determining not whether minds or machines were the same or different, but rather what difference does it make to be in one network or the other? The performative, not the ontological question. Thought becomes a process. Um, and it can be embodied and externalized in these actual structures. And this is when, and whether or not they worked as thought machines, these worked. People took up this model, right? So this is one of my major points, this, displace, this displacement, right, with ontology and taxonomy and interest of obsession for relations, processes, method, method, method. My second point is, if this is true, then we are rationally and logically psychotic. It's not a theory, it's a proof. And in fact, McCullough goes on proudly and happily in a very famous conference when um, discussing 
uh, John von Neumann's actually theory of automata to say what we were doing, and I think we succeeded fairly well, was treating the brain as a Turing machine. That is, as a device which, which could perform the kind of functions which a brain must perform, it was only to go wrong and have a psychosis. Excellent. So the more logical, the more rational you are, the more psychotic you are. So, um, so he's kind of embracing, if you will, this kind of partial perspective, the impossibility of being a kind of consolidated subject. Um, so these wily little circuits, these crazy little nerves, they keep moving and they keep traveling. Um, and what's important here is to also contemplate the kind of time of these structures as well as the uncanniness and strangeness of control, right? So control in a Turing machine isn't only just what directs the command, right? It's also being directed, right, by the tape. So up, down, bottom up, which way does it go? Control is incredibly uh, complex and uncanny, but it births an incredible desire inside engineering and the computational and co communicative sciences to begin negotiating and dealing with it. And these nets, they keep just moving around. Um, and I just love some of these diagrams. So this is a very famous um, uh, uh, book by von Neumann and Morgenstern called Planning and, and Coding. Oh, no, von Neumann and Goldstein. I'm sorry, I wrote that wrong, but it doesn't matter. Anyway, this is an early depiction of control. And what I love this is they have these squiggly lines. We propose to indicate these portions of the flow diagram of C by a symbolism of lines oriented by arrows. This this uh, linear sequence of operations with no indications of elements in that it will be denoted by symbols like these. But second, it's clear this notation is incomplete and unsatisfactory. And you're like, well, what does it do then? Who knows? So then these things just keep moving. Like people just kind of black box it and, and keep building their systems. And of course, these nets, they keep moving around. Here's Von For Jay Forster's um, uh, images of industrial dynamics. And he then goes on to write a book called Urban Dynamics about kind of uh, uh, putting in uh, control and computation and organizing the city. Um, it moves into government. This is a famous uh, book by Carl Deutsch, who is a big uh, uh, politics professor and policy person at Harvard. And you can, and he, he, is, he literally depicts the governments as having sort of repression and, and consciousness and having to divert flows. And he basically argues that the best government is a neurotic government because um, it won't be excessively reactionary. So fascists are, are, as we could have guessed, because we've had this theory, but now we have it, you know, mathematically explicated. Um, and of course, it moves into urban planning. And here um, is a diagram of the city by the Charles and Ray Eames office from an IBM um, exhibition in 1964 called Think. And you can see the kind of layouts of urban space. And of course, even more importantly, um, uh, these things, if we're trying to think about the how is, you know, what's the Morgan Stanley meets the smart city relationship. Um, so here's Herb Simon and Alan Newell and working on their little uh, logical uh, um, equations and their psychotic games. Um, and of course, as you probably know, they're, um, they were very deeply, so Simon was very deeply influenced by McCullough's work. And uh, as you know, they were pioneers in artificial intelligence. But more importantly, Simon was working at RAND. He came up with a certain idea that rationality, even in game theory, was insufficient um, discussion of, of agency. And so um, he takes up the idea of in influenced by von Neumann's games and computers and Wiener's cybernetics and McCullough's neural nets 
Um, his first objection was that rationality usually assumed a separation between the organism and its environment, uh, and thus a subject who could process information from its system without being of it or inside it. He later explained his theories emerging from, and I quote, an acute schizophrenia suffered by the social sciences that duly posited an omniscient rational actor with full information or an effective stupid beast guided solely by one's Oedipal complexes and pleasure principles. Perhaps Simon suggested by way of cybernetics there's some sort of compromise and he imagined a new subject capable of cognitive capacity for making systemic and apparently what we call op what he called optimizing decisions according to preset rules but who could, who simultaneously is no longer reasonable and rational in the 19th century sense of possessing a perceptual field external to the environment. So Simon imagined a subject incapable of objectivity, and he said, literally, we must, he wrote, be prepared to accept the possibility that we, what we call the environment may lie in part within the skin of the biological organism. Um, and what's really interesting here is not only this incredible redefinition of rationality and its absolute separation from liberal subjectivity in this kind of early moment, but also, of course, that today we throw out terms like optimization, efficiency. That's why we hate smart cities. But um, in some sense, we need to define what those things are because optimization from, for Simon is very perhaps different than it would have been in a Taylorist or a different other model. Um, and in the 1960s, he later elaborated, and thank you, UC, for um, this uh, wonderful quote that I think continues to elaborate. Um, he elaborated on this vision of an agent by recourse to the figure of the ant. The ant here is only as intelligent as its environment. It is coupled to the exterior world intimately. Its choices decided as much by the outside as the internal workings of the nervous system. The ant, he wrote, deals with each obstacle as he comes to it. He probes for ways around or over it without much thought for future obstacles. End quote. And for Simon, revising the agent in this way refocuses the search for cognitive intelligence on the production of situations and patterns for action rather than the effort to understand language or consciousness. Um, so perception and cognition become the same as this act of probing, and the act of decision-making um, is also rendered equivalent with the act of sensing. Um, and the idea of intelligence can be linked to small idiotic decisions rather than the comprehension of concepts, right? So we have this increasing idea of kind of a self-organizing or the rise of kind of autopoiesis. And um, I see that's incredibly beautifully illustrated in this contemporary example of the freelancer. I took this from the subway recently, um, where you know suddenly instead of a hierarchy with a queen bee, if you look in 19th century, everyone's equal and we're all, which isn't, or whatever, and we're all equal, we're all happy worker bees, join the swarm, join the crowd, join the cloud, whatever. Um, so bounding rationality, measuring uncertainty, if we assume logic is psychotic, then we don't need to know everything. We can instead move to the behavioral, the pra pragmatic um, uh, demand. So what these models all measured was not what is happening, but will happen as a result of finding patterns of past data. It is the circuit, it's the net, it's the structure of the organization um, or the game that matters. Processes materialized, made visible, and became both the object and the tool for new forms of measurement. Um, so, and all of this later finds even greater fruition. And I'm doing a lot of work right now on this on this formula and the black skulls. Uh, in option markets and the Black Skulls equations in the 60s and 70s, 
Um, and there's this section of the equation that are kind of linked to this sort of cybernetic history. And if this is so, then our nets and markets and organizations are thoughtful, amnesic, psychotic, preemptive, behavioral, affective, rational, but never reasonable. <laughs> Excellent. So um, these circuits networking our minds to our governments possess these uncanny and wily capacities and qualities. They're preemptive, but not predictive. So what's really interesting to me about um, this whole cybernetic story is the way that um, within 15 years or 10 years even of the war, you've dropped entirely the question of defining the future for this kind of new kind of pragmatic mandate to kind of just operate. So you're always kind of in the future, but you don't actually have to define your endpoint. And that's of course a critical thing. When I, when I talk to the engineers, like Cisco itself calls these cities their test beds. And what are they testing? They're like, well, they're always enhanceable. Of course this is bad. They say that city is already obsolete. We'll build another one. But it's, it's about this kind, of, uh, this kind of strange performative, preemptive uh, logic that so much of us have argued is actually, of course, part of um, contemporary capital, but uh, I'm interested in actually giving it that historical uh, background. So, yeah. So, sensing. So, if we are smart, what does sensing mean? Now that we've gotten through cognition. If cognition is animal ant-like, then what is perception? Thought conceived as a channel became attached to sense conceived as processing. Let's talk a little bit about frogs. In 1959, um, uh, but a few years later, McCullough uh, also is part of a group that publishes a very famous article on computer vision called What the Frog's Eye Tells the Frog's Brain, and the fact that the frog's eye is speaking should tell you something. Um, in this paper, written, as I said, by McCullough, uh, Jerome Letvin, um, Maturana and Pitt, uh, they had a series of questions. And considering that cybernetics were worried about enemies and praise, how does anyone ever tell anything? In short, they open with a simple question. Assuming a world of informatic overload where our senses are always bombarded by inputs, how can we assume all processing occurs in the brain? In short, considering all the data, how do we ever get a signal? Remember those nets. There's no clarity, right, where signals come from, and the boundaries of the subject and the object are confused. So obviously, it's not because we only cognate in the head. Clearly not. The scientists discovered, and this is nothing short of amazing, that frog's eyes separated from the brain, that is, they had an optic nerve lying in a little, well, actually, they had an optic nerve. They had a poor frog. Uh, cut open, <laughs> and uh, they had little clips put on each side of it. And, and but basically, it was an optic nerve severed from the brain. Um, I don't know how the frog felt about all this, but uh, the scientists discovered that the frog's eyes separated from the brain may still respond to transformations in the visual field. So they worked on these moving edge detectors, and they discovered a fiber, and I quote, that responds best when a dark object smaller than the receptive field enters the field, stops, and moves inter about intermittently thereafter. They concluded, and this is astounding, and I quote, the eye speaks to the brain in a language already highly organized and interpreted instead of transmitting some more or less accurate copy of the distribution of light on the receptors, end quote. And their fellow colleague, Arbib, summarized that this proves that it's a frog eye, and as I mentioned, it's literally a, a severed optic nerve, um, could deal with universals like prey and enemy. In short, it is a Turing machine also, yay. And perception, therefore, becomes the same as cognition. So now we're seeing a kind of compression between 
um, the cognitive and perceptual processes as autonomous entities like eyes begin the process of abstracting and processing information. This analysis opens the possibility that perception has itself, of course, become modelable. And in fact, this is still one of the most important studies in the, in the history for computer uh, vision. Maybe not for frogs. Um, their initial <laughs> logic is, yeah, I don't know what it tells you about anything else, but anyway, you can build a channel. Their initial logic was critical, right? They argued the optic nerve does not transmit every piece of data or light it picks up. Instead, they created this experiment where the optic nerve is exposed, right, to variations in light stimuli. So we're studying variations and pattern recognition here. It's the relationship between dark to light, movement and stillness, not a specific single stimulus. Um, and again, uh, it is the structure of the interaction or the net that matters. What we're trying to extract is the pattern that reveals prey or enemy, not the ontology of prey enemies. The neurosciences thus produce a flexible barrier between the realms of stimulus, the forms of data, the organs of reception, and the site of processing. Um, and while such, again, subjective perception had been found in the 19th century physiology and psychology, it's no longer a question of objectivity. Like, so it's not about getting past it, it's about building it, it's about doing it. It's about um, these very nerves extracted from any particular body are capable of processing and analyzing data. The act of processing information and the act of analyzing it, and that's really a critical point, become the same. And again, uh, vision becomes a channel that can be forever enhanced, uh, circulated, rebuilt, and there's no normative concept for what um, vision should be. So um, the ideal of a singular or objective form of vision is replaced by a fantasy of effectiveness or affect serving particular functions. So um, vision, again, is viewed as a channel. It can be enhanced. It can be circulated. It can be autonomously rendered. And what's more important is that now the optic nerve and your neural net uh, and your neurons uh, are seen essentially increasingly cognition and perception are sort of viewed as equivalent. Um, and this, of course, is all based on a sort of lack of regards. It's all kind of got a forward timing or perhaps an automation of recording and assumption of an informatically rich world. So perception came to be defined as the ability to respond and is merged with cognition, um, pattern seeking. And in fact, this continues to become, this, these studies were actually done in the early 60s and the late 50s, but um, the book comes out later. So um, this sort of cybernetic notion of vision continues to go out, just to give you a further example. In the late 50s and 60s, Bella Jaliz, an Hungarian emigre from the war working at Bell Labs, researched what he labeled cyclopean, cyclopean perception, an ode to the mythic monster who stands for the ability of the nervous system to produce a perceptual myth of a unified visual field. And he was an innovator of applying machines to the study of human vision and worked closely, again, with the cybernetic cognitive and communication theories. And his path-breaking work separated human vision in two vectors, death per perception and form recognition. So using the 19th century discoverer of the stereoscope, he sought to resolve the one question unknown at the time and unresolved since whether depth, um, unresolved until his work, um, whether depth perception result from perspective, a kind of geometric reality, like actually knowing space representatively, or whether it resulted from the subject's recognition of relationships between objects, a result of recognizing forms. In his studies, he postulated the vision was a matter of finding repetitive patterns out of inputs. And so what he did is, um, so you actually need red and green glasses. But anyway, he showed these illegible <laughs> things. Um, and that you would see if you were a test subject with uh, stereoscopic. And, you were, and what he found out is that 
people looking at it would slowly begin to see in three dimensions. That they would map, that the, that the visual apparatus would learn. And what he was pioneering was actually a, a, a computational approach. And his, his point was to show you something there's no way that has any relationship to any reality we live in, right? There's no, there's nothing supposedly recognizable about this. So these computer-generated stereoscopic blocks were different in pattern when seen monocularly, but when put together and through, as I said, the stereoscopic glasses, patterns would emerge. Um, encountering these strange forms, test subjects would begin to see in three dimensions after staring at the pattern for a time. Joel has noted that while subjects did not immediately see depth in the pattern, after looking, the, t the field became dimensional. So vision also becomes a temporalized process, again, and that's critical at both extracting it and tuning human beings to machines. The visual apparatus, so to speak, was learning, autopoietically producing depth in relationship to the computer-generated box. So the visual process was pattern matching and distilling depth out of data through filtering information and finding patterns. This ability to produce three-dimensional sensation occurred without any conscious recognition of relationships between objects, identification of form, or gestalt. In short, depth perception could occur without entering the realm of conscious representation. Viewers shown incoherent computer-generated patterns, which it was very qu quite sophisticated computationally to produce these, could still find patterns and begin to see in three dimensions. And this led to all sorts of artistic odes to him, um, this one's for Dolly, uh, and then somebody else then went on, and um, Michael Knoll is a pioneer in electronic arts, said, well, now that vision is autonomous and thinking and perception and cognition, why can't machines just make art? So uh, this machine, uh, this is art envisioned by a machine, not from us. Um, so uh, I think this is quite, um, and so, I think this is quite telling, actually, about what's happening. So um, while the use of random patterns, as I said, such as uh, Rosarch chess, had often been used in psychology, Jalouzis suggested that these previous methods had now achieved a new era, right, of autonomy and self-regulation, as we can tell by this idea of art and vision through a machine. As Jalouz pointed out, the era of cybernetics and information theory is marked by the study of complex systems with stochiastic input signals and the measuring of stochiastic output parameters. And so what marks this change was the capacity to probe the central nervous system through complex generated images with precisely defined statistical and geometrical properties. And what's most important about this model is the fact that vision and perception is self-produced from within the system. So perception becomes this probabilistic channel. Its capacities are variable and can always be enhanced, increased, and transformed. And is capable, of course, of being engineered and enhanced and modified. So this is a vision that stretches into the nervous system and out to the computationally generated blocks. It's the result of a process of seeing that I said could be simulated. So perception becomes an informatic entity. It's assumed to operate on a set of algorithmic and communicative principles that could be cordoned off and isolated. And cybernetics would become a mode of operations interested not in representing the world, but understanding what templates, approximations, um, and, uh, and generalized sort of processes allow the eye, now an independent um, you know, uh, set of processes, not attached to conscious reason, uh, to perceive and act in the world. And it's literally act. And of course, this, this kind of atti this attitude continues to pervade. So another example is how, of how this vision is sort of entering is, um, this is John Whitney's 
who is a pioneer computer graphic working at the same time, also using ideas from McCullough and from Gilles. Uh, and he dreamed about, as early as 1957, he recalled, and he kind of pioneered computer animation, was considered one of the pioneers with his brother, James. I had begun to construct mechanical drawing machines. I was not motivated to create representational images with these machines, but instead wanted to create abstract patterns in motion to evoke the most explicit emotions directly to its simple pattern configurations of tones and time. And to accomplish this um, this ambition. He literally built these machines um, built from the remains of anti-aircraft servo mechanisms. So you can see one of his machines. He basically wanted to use the anti-aircraft defense um, machine to actually directly draw on the on the film so that you would have an animation that was entirely computer and stochiastically generated so that you would put in these patterns and the feedback between the machine would start generating these spirals. He did vertigo um, the intro and other key things. But anyway, what's important is this idea that he wanted to um, so use this military hardware and he wanted to create an algorithmic vision that made machine authors in the production of human experience a form of machine vision whose work did not operate at the level of a visible image but through the attenuation of a nervous system. He literally wrote, I want to create motion that begets emotion. Uh, by way of this computational form of um, scene. And he did a lot of work, including some very famous pieces of American propaganda. This is Glimpses of the USA. He was the editor for this famous installation uh, done by the US Information Agency in Moscow in 1959. Um, so he is very prominent. Of course, he did verdict, uh, the, in the credits. Um, and one of the things, as we, as we look at this movie and we see the oscillations, as the machines start feeding back into each other, at the very, of course, horizon of my conversation, of my uh, talk, is the idea that um, emergence itself has been automated, right? That we have here um, the actual technical realization that change itself has now um, been automated, which leaves us with this new question. So, if this is possible, which it certainly is, is that the real question becomes, of course, how then would we encounter difference? How does um, both difference in terms of different forms of life, how can we envision uh, alternative futures within a system where our very perceptual and cognitive systems are attuned, already preemptively attuned, um, to literally emerge at all times? And this brings me back to, um, memory and our little neural nets, and then finally to Songdo, where we're forced to ask whether or not, basically we're forced to look at these developments and ask ourselves certain questions about whether these genealogies in any way transform our approach to this place, and also other ways that we can intervene and in, in, into the logics um, of this sort of neurocognitive perceptual complex in order to produce alternative futures. And I'll just end with a few images since I'm now working on this Austrian-American architect. So here's Kiesler's um, visions of, uh, so Friedrich Kiesler. So I'm looking in architecture. Are there other alternatives to environment and to the way we're in environment and the way psychology is being rendered? And this is this amazing vision machine he kept trying to build. He had this imagination about um, a responsive environment uh, that would be uh, both psychoanalytically and surrealist uh, informed, as well as perhaps creating um, different zones of pleasure and contact 
um, and experimental life. So I'll just, that's kind of arbitrary, but I just did the research, so I feel like I have to show you these beautiful pictures, uh, just to compensate for this. Uh, <laughs> but anyway, um, so we're really forced to ask ourselves um, sort of what kind of layerings are going on here and how we can, if we will, hack, modify, or, or uh, rethink what's happening in these spaces, as well as how do we leverage, why are there these particular imaginaries, because I find it really interesting um, that the, the real estate developer, Gail from Boston, still thinks in terms of surface area ratio and these kind of Le Corbusian or Siam looking things. And, um, and the Cisco people said, we never talked to the urban planners. They could have built anything they want. And in fact, this wasn't really very profitable. So one asked certain questions about why and, and, and how um, these sort of older forms are kind of emerging into these newer spaces and how to activate that in um, ways that allow uh, different forms of life to proliferate. So I'll end there. This is the user experience Gander Radio. Thanks for listening. Visit uxhh-radio.blogspot.de for more live recordings.